0: in the middle of Jesus' farewell discourse, and uh, this is where, oh man, I'm going to fight with this cord the whole time. <laughs> so this is where Jesus says, uh, in chapter fir- uh, starting in chapter 13, verse 1, uh, he knew that his hour was coming and, and the hour where he would be falsely tried, where he would be rejected, where he would be beaten, mocked, and scorned, and where he would ultimately be hung on a cross uh, in order to glorify the Father, to take on the sin of the world, and to make a public spectacle of it. And so that's where we are right now. Uh, he's, re- he's about to go to the cross to redeem and to justify mankind by bringing them back into right relationship with God. And so Jesus, as he stated many times throughout his ministry, he knows that his hour is here. He knows that his hour is, is com- has come. And so we're on the brink of this event that's going to change the course of history forever. It's going to change everything that we know. And so these are the precious hours that are going to lead up to the time when the disciples will not only be able to walk, not be able to walk and talk with him anymore. So in one way, they're about to lose their friend. They're about to lose someone that they've been around for about three years now. And then in another way, their savior is about to cease to be in human form anymore. So they're about to lose their savior for now and as a human anyway. So, so Jesus knows this, and he wants to prepare them for what's about to come their way. So he's been preparing them this whole time. So chapter 13 is kind of a summarization of how Christ uh, loved and, and loves those that are his. And so chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so David talked about how this this literally means he loved them to completion. He loved them completely. And so Jesus' perfect love was what sustained these guys and what's going to bring them to know God and what's going to bring them to proclaim the name of Christ, even to the point of considering that, that their lives were less of a priority than knowing and proclaiming that he is good. And so that's where we're at right now. And in chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So even Judas, who he knew shortly after would betray him, he humbles himself. He puts himself in a posture of the lowest servant and washes their feet. And so he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and I've given you this example. But he says, do this in just the same way as what I've done to you. In verse 16, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things blessed are you if you do them. A servant is not greater than his master. So Jesus says if if I'm lord if I'm your lord and I'm humbling myself to serve you then it's a no brainer that you do whatever possible to serve others on this earth in just the way that I've served you. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's loving them to completion. He's caring for them perfectly while he's continuously revealing himself to them, right? The, uh, throughout the book of John, he's revealing himself and revealing himself to his disciples and to those around him. And so in his foreknowledge, he foretells that Judas is going to betray him, allowing those of us reading to understand that he goes to the cross on his own accord, that nobody tells him when he's going to go. Nobody takes him before it's his time, that he goes to the cross on his own accord. And so Judas is not, only disrupt, not disrupting God's plan, but he is fulfilling God's plan perfectly. He's an active participant that will activate everything that's going to happen for Jesus to go to the cross because of his unbelief and because of his greed. And so then at the end of chapter, at the end of chapter 13, after, after Judas leaves, he gives a command that's going to be followed by a bunch of promises, by a lot of promises that he says. And so he's promising this to his disciples. And so this is the portion of the night when Jesus begins what they call his farewell discourse. And so remember, he's preparing his disciples for departure. He's all they've known for the last three years, and now he's going to be gone. And so he wants to prepare them. He wants to, see them uh, he wants to see them do well. And so in verse 34 and 35 of chapter 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so he's saying, he's telling them, you guys in this room, you have to love one another. There's going to be a time when the world is going to turn against you. The world is going to be against you. And this love that you're expressing to one another, it's going to be crucial. You're going to need that. You need to to live in that love. And you're going to be known by this love that you have one another. And also, guess what? The world is going to hate you because of it. And so that's where we're going to be today. But we're we're going to get more into that in a little bit. So then Jesus goes on to make these promises, and I, I think it would be really beneficial for us to kind of collectively be reminded of the commands that Jesus, the commands and the promises that Jesus lays out uh, in the chapters before what we're going to be in today. And so, uh, by the way, these are prom these promises they're they're applied to you and me as well. If we're believers in Christ, if we're trusting in Him, and and if we're if we're His, they these promises apply to us as well. And I mean, you know, all I really have to do today, honestly, like there's not a whole lot of time barrier here because I mean, if I get you guys out of here before tomorrow, then I preach, you know, less than Blake and David. So I think we'll be all right, you know. (laughs) I mean, David goes, what, 63 minutes last week. I I think I can stay under that, you know. (laughs) So, So first he promises in chapter 14 he says that in his father's house are many rooms, that he goes to prepare a place for them. And he promises that he's not only going now, but he's gonna come back. He's gonna come back again, and he's gonna take them to himself. He's gonna bring them into himself. And so they, and we, have a place being prepared for us. And he's gonna come back to take us, where we can be in constant community and, in, and worship him forever. And so then he says, you know the way to where I'm going. He tells Thomas that, and Thomas says, "Uh uh-uh. No, we don't know. How can we we know the way that you're going? And Jesus says the last of his I am statements. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus claims that he is the only way to the Father, and he confirms that they, in fact, know the Father and have seen him through Jesus. Jesus. What an encouragement to these people. What an encouragement to these guys. They know the Father. They've seen him. Look, I've revealed, Jesus is saying, I've revealed everything that is in the Father. Then he says in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus is saying, disciples, you're gonna do greater works. The declaration, the demonstration of the gospel is gonna spread like wildfire. And if you ask for anything with the desires of my heart and mind, then I'll give it to you. Jesus is going to align our hearts to his desires. He's gonna align our hearts to his desires if we trust in him and if we abide in him. So he promises to send the helper when he's gone, right? The spirit of truth, to teach all things and to bring to remembrance the things that he's already said to them. So to, to help them to remember the things that he said to them, the promises that he's made to them, and to speak for them. He's not gonna leave them as orphans. He's not gonna leave them fatherless. But he's gonna come back for them. He's gonna come to them. And then in chapter 15, he encourages them. He says, abide in me. And he makes this promise at the same time. In verse five, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And again, if you abide in him and ask what you wish, it's gonna be given to you. If you are, if you are in him, if, the, if his desires become your desires, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. And you can see Jesus' commands kind of woven into these promises that he gives in chapter, uh, starting, starting in verse 12, the things that he says in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, talking to the disciples. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Listen to this but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So finally, Jesus talks about himself as one who lays down his life for his friends. The ultimate love, and that Jesus is going to die for them and for all believers today, and he calls us friends. He's gonna die for us on the cross, and he calls us friends. We are intimate with Jesus we're called by a name of endearment, a name of someone who is intimately close to him, someone in whom he has revealed the nature of the Father to. That is so important and so crucial. Wow. So after a long, a little bit of a long introduction, now we're ready to start in the text today. So we're going we're gonna to pick up uh, in John ch- chapter 15, verse 16, and uh, I'll go ahead and read uh, the whole thing to you, uh, starting in verse, I'll start back in If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them they would not have been guilty of sin but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did they would not be guilty of sin but now they have both seen and hated both they have seen and hated both me and the father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth Who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God, and they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I that I told them to you, and so we're going to start uh, in verse. We're going to start in verse fifteen. He says, "You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, that He may give it to you." The absolute first thing that I see here, the first thing that I see when I'm looking at this, Jesus wants to make very clear to them, like He has many times, that He is the reason that they get to enjoy these privileges and these promises. He's effectively saying, don't get your heads puffed up, right? Like, don't get your heads puffed up. I just told you all of these promises. Yes, I call you friend. You're gonna receive all these things that we spoke about earlier, but not, it's not because of some morality trait. It's not because of something good that you've done. Christ is the one who chose them. They absolutely did not and would not choose him on their own. But also what's just as important is that Jesus is continuing to lay out his specific purpose. He's talking about his specific purpose that, continued at the, that continues the beginning of John chapter 15. So while they were chosen, they were also appointed. And when you're appointed, what, what, is, what does being appointed mean? Being appointed means being assigned a role, a certain role. And so what is that role? He says it very specifically that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And so continuing from the rest of the the promises that we've seen in chapter 13 through 15, Jesus is gonna comfort his disciples through this. Uh, But he's gonna also command things of the disciples once again. And so he says, I chose you and appointed you. He gives them the command to go and bear fruit. That just as we talked about a few weeks ago, the only way that this can happen is if they abide in him. If they abide in him, if they remain in Christ. So then their lives will be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But more specifically, that they will bear witness of what they've seen and what they've heard and what Christ did on their behalf. So they're going to tell the good news of what they've seen previously and what they're about and what Christ is about to show them by his death on the cross, his love that's expressed in John chapter 15, verse 13, when he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. So he's about to lay down his perfect life in place of those who deserve his death. We deserve his death. He's going to lay down his life in place of that. And they're going to proclaim it so that whoever hears it in responds to God's calling will abide in him or remain in him. So he's calling them to evangelize. He's calling the disciples to share the gospel, to share what they've seen and what they've heard and what he's told them. And so the very end of verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. I know this has been emphasized, but Christ is the means of any fruit bearing that's happening. And just as we mentioned in John fifteen seven a few weeks ago, when we are truly believers that are bearing fruit, our wishes and our desires are gonna transform and be aligned with those of the Father. And so we go to him with the desires based on, uh, based on his will in the name of Jesus. Every time we pray, every time we do anything, we say, we say a prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. So it's only through the active love of Christ shown in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection that we're able to come to the Father in prayer. And I know this kind of seems like I'm repeating this a lot, but it's, it's crucial that that's, that's the part of this that we understand. And so now when we get to verse 17, we see a major transition, right? And so this is where most of our time is gonna be spent today because Jesus' uh, conversation with his disciples up to this point has mostly been about love, right? Right? Promises and love and the things that the things that he 's going to do for them and the the, the things that will be done on their behalf and so uh, it was kind of summarized in chapter thirteen verse one when he says he 'd love those who are in the world to completion, just like we talked about earlier he 's been pouring on all these amazing promises, all these things and so then, after this he 's going to shift he 's going to shift his focus to a conversation that it's mostly going to revolve around the word hate or hatred. And so it's a pretty drastic change that we're going to see here. A conversation that, you know, if we're going to be honest, it makes many of us in the church today, including myself, we find this very difficult to embrace. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. So he's been describing the love that he has for his disciples and he's going to contrast that with the hatred that the world has for those who speak in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Uh, Verse 17 is a transition verse that says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So Jesus is going to reiterate the command that he's given his disciples throughout John 15 and in verse 12 to continue to have love for one another, to continue to love one another. And in another way, it sets sets the stage for this major contrast that we're going to see between how the disciples love one another and how the world will absolutely hate them because of the calling that they've received. So, He's gonna let them know that they need to love one another because other Christians are all that Christians have in this world, right? Other, other believers are all that we have in this world. The world's gonna hate them, so they need to hold on to each other. And now he's gonna give some of the reasons, uh, he's gonna walk through some of the reasons why the world is going to hate them and why the world hates him. So continuing to verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So when Jesus says the world, what's he talking about here? Uh, learn, I learned a little bit this week, the Greek word cosmos is actually what Jesus uses here, which refers to a created order. It refers to, to an orderly system. And so I learned that the word cosmos is actually the opposite of the word chaos, which uh, which would mean, you know, out of order, unorderly, disorderly. But cosmos is a created order. So the world is an ordered system, but it's an ordered system of evil that's directly and actively rebelling against the Father, against the Lord. And so that's what he's talking about when he refers to the world, a specific system in rebellion from the Father. So he's trying to warn the disciples that all of the hatred that was shown to Christ— by the world is about to be inherited by them. So this is, this is a warning to eliminate any, any type of surprise factor that they have. All the terrible things that have said about him and that, and that have tried to been done in his name and, and all of the rebellion that's going to take place when they crucify him will then be passed on to any who try to preach the gospel in his name. So why does the world hate the disciples and, and those of us who preach the gospel in his name? Number one, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why does the world hate us? Because we're not like them. Because we're not like them. Scripture makes it clear that the world loves evil. Ephesians 2 talks about us before we knew Christ. It says when we were part of the it talks about when we were part of the world. It says when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, uh, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2 calls, of those, uh, calls those of us of the world uh, that used to be of the world and those of the world objects of wrath, objects of his wrath. So Paul also writes about those who are of the world in Romans 1, right? Uh, he, he, tells, he, he talks about them suppressing the truth by their unrighteousness. He says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's what he would go on to say in Romans 1. So on the other hand, Christians were, on the other hand, you know we, we see the world. On the other hand, Christians were chosen by God to be set apart from this world. We're to be holy as God is holy. We, we were redeemed and righteousness was given to us based on the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness was imputed to us. So if you haven't before, I hope that you see this major contrast. I hope that you see the, what, we're, what we're looking at here. We're not supposed to look like the world. Jesus says if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. If you had not received salvation, everything would be fine. Everything would be good between you and the world. But now, because you've been saved, because you've been redeemed, they're going to absolutely hate you. That's tough. That's a tough concept. And so I'll say this on a personal note, like I... I love seeing how God orchestrates things in this church. Like, uh, you know, you may think after a sermon sometimes that, that whoever was preaching was speaking directly to you because it was so applicable to your situation. Well, I also think it's pretty cool when God, like, aligns our preaching schedule to, uh, to where I preach a passage like this one that makes me very uncomfortable. And so I'm gonna admit it to you now, this is, this is a tough, I mean, this is tough for me. This is a tough passage. So not that it's extremely difficult to understand, but it's very difficult for, to apply in my case. It's very difficult. And so if you happen to not know me very well, uh, one of the things, uh, like I, I see a lot of visitors, uh, so I, I probably need to describe myself a little bit. One of the things that you're going to find out about me is that I enjoy pleasing people. I like being a people pleaser. So I want people to like me. And sometimes, you know, that plays itself out well. I, I went to a leadership conference this past, this past week. And, you know, when you're walking into a room of individuals that you don't know anybody and, you know, you kind of have to get to know people pretty quickly, being being agreeable and personable is, you know, is somewhat of a, of a good thing. And I'm not saying that it would necessarily be acceptable to act like a rude little punk and just kind of go sit, isolate myself and not want to be involved with anyone. I'm not saying stuff like that. But when I see what scripture says that, that we're gonna be hated because we're not like the world, it really makes me look into the things that I might be compromising or completely taken out of my life just to try to look more like those in the world do, to look more like those that are not believers. So, and, and you see why this is so difficult for me. Uh, for, for example, we had, to, we had to introduce ourselves the other night at this introductory dinner. And so, uh, you know, if some of you have been involved in, in some of these conferences and things like this before, you kinda you kinda know where I'm going with this. Like the first night we have this dinner and okay, all right, nobody knows each other. We're walking in, and now we have to introduce ourselves and say something cool about ourselves, right? So, you know, imagine picture Jordan Phil, y'all might be able to connect with this a little bit more. Imagine a bunch of awkward, weird engineers in a room together. And so that's where you're Josh and Adam always tell me that like uh you know, when I when I went to get my diploma, I had to trade in my you know anything funny in me or any type of personality or anything like that to be able to get my engineering diploma. So you can imagine a bunch of weird, awkward engineers in a room together explaining things about themselves. But uh, but that's that's not the that's not the point of this situation. So uh, so so like I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say. Like they told us in an email that we're going to that we're going to be introducing ourselves and so I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say. You know, I could always uh I could always take the the easy, "Oh, I'm a Louisiana boy. I like hunting and fishing and being outside and all this stuff." But, you know, I immediately thought, "Well, why don't I tell them that, that I'm a pastor? You know, why don't I tell them that that I'm, you know, involved in our in our church and I, and I'm a pastor." And, and immediately I, I started thinking like, oh no i don't want them, i don 't want their perception to be you know, of me to be that i that 'm a pastor immediately like i, I don 't want them to know that immediately because then they 'll think differently of me and then i'll start to think like how stupid is that? How ridiculous is that that i 'm concerned about these people that I, these weird people that I have never met in my life, and i 'm one of those weird people by the way that i 've never met in my life I mean you know, I was willing to not mention the greatest passion that I have in this world because of what somebody that I've never met in my life might think about, uh, might perceive me as. And so I understand that this is a very small situation and this is something that, uh, this is a minute example of fear of persecution. But when Christ says that we're gonna be set apart, we're called to embrace that difference. We're called to preach truth no matter what the cost might be. And so, the truth of the matter is also, you know, I know this is a small situation, but for many in this world today, their emphasis on truth and the preaching of his word may very well cost them their lives. So I don't want to downplay this. Like in many contexts and many cultures in the world, this preaching of the gospel is going to cost them their lives. So this passage is real and they may have a greater understanding. Those, those who are being persecuted more, they may have a greater understanding than we have in this room. And so uh, moving on, verse 20 says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Point number two, why is the world gonna hate us? Because they hated Christ first. First. He says, they're going to hate you because they hated me first. When the world saw Jesus, the source of all truth in his perfection and in his holiness, they can't help but hate him. The Pharisees, the authorities on all that was religious, the experts in the law, when they encountered Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly, they wanted to kill him. So in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? So he's He raises Lazarus from the dead, an amazing miracle that shows that he literally has power over death. He has power over death. And after this amazing emotional experience, some of the Jews, what do they do immediately? They go and tattle. They go and tell the Pharisees, right? They've just seen a man being raised to life and they go and tattle. And so they tell the Pharisees and and this is what John records in chapter 11, verse 47. He says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's their concern. So they agree that he performs great signs, but they couldn't possibly risk everyone following him, so they decide to put him to death even though he had not wronged him, he had not wronged them in any way, not in the least. He was perfect. This is what Jesus does, right? He causes some to fall in love with him and to swear absolute allegiance to him and some to persecute him, escalating to the highest degree of death on a cross. And so that's the, we've talked about the repelling nature of Jesus. Either, either he's gonna cause you to, to, to love him and to come, and to, come to him and, and to accept all that he's saying or he's gonna cause you to hate him. So what about Jesus causes the world to hate him? And we've already touched on this a little bit, but if you can recall in John chapter 7, the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus. So he goes to the Feast of Booths later than everyone else, the Feast of Booths. Uh, and his brothers, you know, they're, they're wanting to go up ahead they're like, come on, Jesus. Like anybody that wants to be known doesn't just do these things in secret. Like, make yourself known, come out. Because honestly, they didn't believe in him, they didn't know. So they, they wanted to see some more evidence. And so he says to them in verse 6 and verse 7. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And then listen to this next part. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The truth of Christ exposes evil. That's the issue here. The truth of Christ exposes evil. It repulses evil. So he calls out their evil deeds and complete and total righteousness. He is totally righteous and he's calling out their evilness. They have nothing to say. They have no leg to stand on. So they want to kill him. That's what they do. They want to kill him. And Jesus says in this passage, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. His reference is to when he washed his disciples' feet. And then he said, a servant is not greater than his master. As he has humbled himself as their Lord and their master, they were to humble themselves and to serve those around them. So in this case, he uses, he uses this phrase to put things into perspective. If he is holy, if he is spotless, if he is the righteous lamb who is absolutely without any sin and they persecuted him, then the broken, sinful men that he's looking at right now, the broken, sinful men that made up this group of disciples, they could definitely expect persecution. If Christ, the perfect sacrifice, was was persecuted, then we can expect persecution as believers because we're not perfect. Again, this is to keep them from being surprised when persecution does come. Does come. And persecution is coming. And so we know from, from, looking, at the, from looking at the history of Christianity that, that the words that Jesus was speaking to, to his disciples at this point was prophetic, that, that it was prophecy. They foretold of centuries of persecution but after the time of Jesus' death, and this, and this still rings true today. Although many of us in America don't live in fear of death from religious persecution, it's, it's evident that many, uh, that many that the world hates what we do. You know, the world hates what we do as as believers. And so I was going to attempt to illustrate this, but I think you guys probably already have some type of relevant illustration in your mind as to, um, you know, smaller level persecution that, that we receive in the United States. But I, I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to give another example. Like if you were able to hear the, uh, from the wonderful family that visited us last week, uh, if you were able to hear their story uh, sharing about their ministry in a closed uh, Muslim country, you heard that, that the cost of following Christ is, in their immediate context could even cause your family to turn against you, right? It could cause your family to be against you. Being a Christian in many other contexts around the world, including that country, could lead, to, could lead to a lot of things, right? It could lead to loss of your job or your livelihood, complete excommunication from your family, and then at many times, many times, death. And so think about this. Fathers and mothers are turning from their sons and daughters and forcing them to march to their impending death because they believe and trust in the gospel. That's the the situation we're in. The world hates Christians. I'm here to tell you this. So he says that they're gonna persecute believers on account of his name because they don't know the Father, the one who sent Christ. If you do not know Christ, you cannot know the Father. Remember in John chapter 14, he's he's gonna talk about this. He says that he's the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And he says in verse seven, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You would have known him. If you knew me, you would know my father. So back to chapter 15, he's going to expound on verse 21 in in 22 through 24. So he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So just to clarify, not a, not a, a major point here, but it needs to be addressed. Uh, when he said that he had, when he said if he had not come and spoken to them that they would not have been guilty of sin, he's not referring to Jesus' becoming, producing guilt for the first time before God. So like just because Jesus came is, is the only reason that, that they're sinful. No, that's not true. Uh, we see in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes, it says God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived since, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We know that every man that is not reconciled to God through Christ is found guilty of sin based on the Father's standards. Jesus is instead saying here that, that since they heard his words and they saw his signs and they still rejected him, That they are guilty of the worst of sins. They're guilty of seeing the fullest revelation that the Father has ever given people on earth and rejecting Him. Seeing the full revelation of Christ, seeing Him completely, the Father in bodily form, and not being able to recognize it and ultimately rejecting Him. Having the brightest light in front of them caused them to commit the darkest of sins. And so He spoke the truth. Absolutely no one could deny that. He was an amazing teacher who revealed the Father fully. He revealed the Father in everything that he did with the words that he said. He performed signs and wonders that no normal man could ever perform. He exhibited full control over weather, over food and drink quantity, over the human body, and even over death. And seeing all of this, they rejected him. They rejected him, which showed immediately that they hated, that they hated God. So let's look at verse 24 again so that we can transition into verse 25. It said, if I, had not done these th- if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and the Father. In verse 25, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So why does the world hate Christians? Reason number three, to fulfill the words of the law or the scriptures of the Old Testament. And so I imagine this was, was comforting for them and it, and it should be comforting to us, right? No matter how bad the persecution gets for believers, no matter how bad it gets, it's not outside of the redemptive plan of God. God has a plan. He has a plan. This rejection only fulfills what is written in their law. And so this quotation was likely uh, drawn from Psalm 69, verse 4, which is likely a psalm of David. Uh, That's what the the commentaries say. Um, The idea here is that if David could be hated for no reason, how much more could Christ, a descendant of David, be hated for no reason? So they're condemned by the words from their own scriptures. These people who are hating Christ are condemned by the words of their own scriptures. And this is how we can be comforted. We can look at the persecution that's happening across the world today, and we can know, we can know without a doubt that it's part of God's plan. It was part of his plan all along, and it is bringing him more and more and more glory as people are persecuted in the name of Christ. It is bringing him more glory. And so at this point, we've We've kind of walked through uh, the reasons why the world's going to persecute believers. And and now we're going to see the response, uh, the response that Jesus expects from his disciples. And so in verse 26, he says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So this is the third reference to the, the paraclete. Uh, what David was talking about a few weeks ago, or Blake, I believe, actually. uh, The comforter or the helper, the Holy Spirit that Christ says that he will send. And so this, the one that Christ promised would teach all things, uh, the one that would bring to their remembrance all that he said to them, like he said in chapter 14. And the helper is gonna bear witness about Christ to the world. He is gonna bear witness about who Christ is. And he reminds them that it's imperative that since they had seen him from the beginning and and since they know him, that they bear witness about him also. He's reminding them of this. And he's saying, you will bear witness about me just as the spirit is bearing witness about me. And so then we're gonna go into the beginning of chapter 16. And and remember, even through this, even though this has turned from a talk about love to a talk about hatred, Jesus's purpose is still to confess to, to comfort and to prepare his disciples for his departure. That's the whole that's the whole purpose of this, right? He's gonna comfort them and prepare them. So he tells them, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. This is his purpose. He's preparing them so that they'll be strong in their defense of the gospel, so that they'll stand up for the gospel, so that they'll love all that is true and all that is good. They're going to need it. He says, they're going to put you out of all the societal structure that you have right now. They're going to put you out of that. They're going to eliminate you from that. Their lives, these Jews, their lives revolved around the synagogues. He said, they're going to put you out. Then he makes another very difficult prophecy. He tells them that they're going to be killed in the name of God. Don't miss that. Not only will they exclude you from the practices of Israel, but they will kill you in His name. They'll kill you in God's name. They will say that they're doing it in God's name, but they have no clue who He is. And so we see that Jesus was right. Jewish history tells us that the disciples, excluding John the Baptist who was uh, who was exiled, um. Uh, were all persecuted to the point of death. They were all persecuted to death. So, but Christ spent his time with them in this farewell discourse uh, to, to allow them to be able to see past the persecution in their current state, right? He, he knows that they're about to face all of these trials and these difficult times and, and they will ultimately be persecuted to death, but he wants them to focus on the eternal glory that's waiting for them in Christ Jesus. He wants them to focus on, on what's ahead, on what's coming to them. That's why he started with the promises, the promises that are, that, are, that are promised to them. And so he wants them to see that eternal glory. He wants them to be able to look past their current situation and look toward Christ. And so uh, with that, I've got, I've got a few implications today uh, based on the text that I, I felt were relevant. And, and I hope that you can also find benefit in kind of considering these thoughts and considering what, what, what I'm thinking through here. Uh, so number one, I, I know for many of us, including myself, like I talked about earlier, uh, when we look around at, at our immediate context, when we look at the world that, in which we live in, some of us... Some of us uh, a little more exposed than others. Some of us kind of live in a bubble. Uh, if we look, When we look at the people that we encounter on a daily basis, we, we may not be able to identify with this world necessarily hating us. Like, what is that? Like, I can't see that. I, I don't see that. What does that look like? Uh, we, we won't be able to identify with that. So, I mean, like, we, we would say, sure, like, people... People don't like what we have to say as Christians sometimes, right? They may blow up our comments on our Facebook or our Twitter page or something like that. Or maybe even they'll have some type of of verbal comments back and forth. But as far as persecution, we can't really identify with what Jesus describes as the hatred of the world here sometimes. And so what I've been asking myself and, and what I would like to ask you also is, if Jesus promised that the world's going to hate us and that they'll surely persecute us if the gospel is preached, then why does the world not hate us more? Like in my context, you know, thinking from, from me, from my perspective, why does the world not, not hate me more? And so is the version, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at with this, is the version of the gospel that we preach, is it the true gospel or is it a compromised version of the gospel? Is it a compromised version that only talks about God being a God of love but never really gets to the issue of our sin and the need for a redeemer? Is that the gospel that we preach? Like it's very easy for us in our context to slowly begin to compromise the gospel, to slowly begin to step back uh, in a way that helps us to, to not cause conflict with anybody, to not, to not be in someone's face, to not, be, to not be direct with what Jesus says in the gospel. And so if you're like me, uh, you know, I've already told you that I'm guilty of this at times. And so I guess my, my challenge is, are we okay with living, in, in, living our lives in a way that instead of living like we've been transformed into the likeness of Christ, like it says in Romans 12, that we're okay with being conformed to the ways and to the pattern of this world? Are we, are we okay with that? And at this point, many would, would go about by telling you that you, you know, you know, you know, after saying something like this, many would, many would say, uh, you know, you need to go out and stand up against certain social issues in our culture and stand up for this and fight for our rights as Christians. But, but instead, I think a good place to go from this is to be introspective, to, to examine what we truly believe about the things that Christ says. Are the claims that he makes actually true? Do we believe that? And then begin to faithfully preach the gospel based on what he said, does that align with the truth of who he is? Does what we say align with the truth of, what, of who he is, no matter the cost? So that's easier said than done. And I just wanna challenge you today to, to understand what Christ is saying and to, try, and to preach a gospel that is worth dying for. I just wanna encourage you that it's good to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. It's good to be hated for the sake of Christ. And as I'm saying this to you, I'm trying to remind myself of this because this is a difficult concept for me. This is difficult for me. But it is good to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. It glorifies the Father. And so number two, um, you know, we talked about those of us that, that can't really identify with that, that don't identify with that very well. Number two, there's I understand that there's some of us that do. For those of you in the church that, that have experienced the hatred of the world, that was, that was a result of sharing the gospel. You know, you've shared the gospel, you've shared the true gospel, and now you're experiencing the hate of the world. I want you to be encouraged. As we covered today, persecution is a part of his plan. It brings the most glory to the Father. And I pray that you would find strength, that you would find strength in the fact that though this may be a painful and dreadful place that you're in right now, though you may be in a place where where you don't really know what's going on, you, you can't really carry this out for another day, that he goes to prepare a place for you and he's coming back to take you to himself. Like he said so many promises here that you can hold on to. Through the trials that you're going through right now, though they may be so emotionally, spiritually, and physically painful that you don't even feel like you can stand it for one more day, you can find hope that everything on this earth, everything on this earth, including the persecution that you're facing now, it's going to fade. It's gonna fade away. But God is yours and you are his and you get to enjoy him forever. You're kept in him, and there is nothing that the world or its ruler, Satan, can do. There is nothing that he can do to separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ Jesus. And so for those of you that that know people in these situations, those of you that, that encounter people on a daily basis in these situations, continue to pray for these people being persecuted. Pray for those across the globe being persecuted. Pray for them, and at the same time, know that God has got them. Pray that they will stay the course. Pray that they will continue to preach the gospel. Pray that they will spread the word of the gospel regardless of what it costs. They are safe in the middle of his will during persecution. I promise you that he can love them more than anyone else can ever love them, even if that means no physical protection, even if that means that they give up their lives for the sake of the gospel. And so we've talked about those two. For those of you that may say you would be considered a part of the world, a part of the world that we discussed today, maybe, maybe Christ is revealing himself to you by exposing your sinfulness today. Maybe, maybe you've been one of those people that's, that's persecuting those who are of God. Uh, maybe it's small persecution, but, but you're, the, the entire purpose of John's gospel Uh, is written in John chapter 20, verses 31 through 32. So he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are now written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what I'm praying for today. My prayer is that you would see the truth, the love, and the grace that is offered to you through Christ, That that you would see the opportunity to be forgiven of sin, and to worship the Father forever. And that you would respond by believing in Jesus Christ to be saved. That's my prayer today. That if you're of the world, if you're one of those people that, and you recognize that, that you would be saved today. That you would believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.